Hello and welcome to Open Room Talks, a podcast which draws on open room events experiencing connecting people to bring you quality discussions between industry experts, innovative suppliers, and high-powered end-users on pertinent issues in a variety of sectors. I am Kiana Sapp, and joining me today I have Ella Snowball and Andrew Kerwin. Ella is the CEO and co-owner of Recruit for Vets, the market leader for locum and veterinary recruitment. After leaving Harrogate Ladies College, Ella went on to study biology at the University of Brighton. Following graduation, Ella's attention turned to recruitment consultancy, and within five years she became branch manager at City Catering in Leeds. Following that, and building upon her interest in medical science, Ella moved on to focus on medical recruitment at the RSG Group and opened up their Leeds office for medical staff. In 2002, Ella decided to take the risk and start her own medical recruitment company, Recruit for Health. In 2012, Ella made the move into the veterinary recruitment market, starting Recruit for Vets. Andrew qualified as a veterinary surgeon from Bristol Vet School in 1990. He worked for three years in mixed practice in Gloucestershire and Oxford. And following a trip around the world, he joined Grampian Pharmaceuticals as a veterinary advisor. In 2000, he moved to Bayer Animal Health, where he became marketing manager for the UK and Ireland, and gained experience from international teams. In 2006, he joined Excel Vets, a collaborative community of independently owned veterinary practices committed to working together to share knowledge, skills, and resources. As chief executive of Excel Vet UK Limited, he leads a team that serves and supports the Excel Vet community through the provision of a range of services and initiatives that enable the Excel Vet membership to first define and then deliver the excellence in practice. He's a keen cyclist, mountain walker, and is learning to turn wood. Thank you both so much for joining me today. Thank you, Jen. Thank you. So, Andrew, in the discussion summary that you sent over to me, you mentioned that you'd like to speak with Ella about the social or unwritten contract that employees naturally enter into with their employers. Now, contracts, as I understand them, should be all-encompassing. In other words, any possible dispute can be resolved purely by reference to the contract itself. However, it seems to me that you're suggesting that certain elements of the employee-employer relationship are not regulated by such a contract. Could you explain for our listeners what you're referring to when you talk about a social employment contract? Yes, thank you. Well, one of the things I noticed is that there's a written contract that you've referred to there, and it may well carry in it all sorts of useful terms for sorting out things. But it's probably only read right at the beginning of the period of employment, and probably right at the end. And actually, there's lots of other things that are unwritten, which govern the way that we do things around here and are in play every day. And that's the contract that really actually is renewed on a daily basis between employee and employer. I wonder if it's useful to look at it from the perspective of different types of power. There's a very formal power, the sort of power that was historically exercised by a monarch who could say, this is what you will do. This is how you must do it. And that's a very useful power to get things done quickly. But it's a power that can be rebelled against because it's very attributable. Whereas there's a much more effective use of power which is where you tell stories, and it's the power of what you see happening around you. So rather than do as I say, it's do as I do. 
And I noticed that works two ways. So rather than just thinking about this being a one-way contract from employer to employee, it's a two-way process. And I think it's that understanding, if you like, that we are engaging in an ongoing renewal of a relationship every day when we go to work that helps us to sort of look towards the future and create a good place. I, I agree with that. I think on my business or in my business, it changes constantly. It's everybody comes in with a contract, but as we go on, we're having to change and look at how different people are working. So flexible working is a good example. They all start working at 8.30 till 5.30, but that doesn't suit everybody. So it's about looking at how we can work. And as you've said, it's do as I do. I don't work nine till five. I'm a flexible worker. So yeah, I think it is changing and you have to constantly look at the unwritten contract that goes on at work. One of the things I'd be really interested in, Ella, is understanding how you see some of the changes that have happened in that unwritten contract in the, in the last few years, because it feels that there have been great changes there in, in perhaps expectations from, from everybody involved. Yeah, I think they have. I think speaking to uh, vets and nurses, more than a few years ago, you came out of college or university with your degree, especially as a vet, and you're expected to stay in your role until the vet who owned the practice retired and you took on the practice. Now, there's a lot of larger veterinary groups. There's a lot more movement. So in your career, you'll be expected to move around a lot more. And like you've already mentioned, flexibility is a huge thing. There are a lot more women in the workforce now, vets and nurses, with families, and they need flexibility. And also, different generations as well, they expect different working environments. Yeah, that's a great point you've made, because that's a really good example of an unwritten sort of social contract, isn't it, that the profession used to have, which is that you came in as a younger vet. And although it was never written anywhere that you would become a business owner or a partner, there was sort of an unwritten contract that if you stayed and developed the business and worked well in the practice and got on with people, then that was something that was quite reasonable to be expecting. And that has changed, hasn't it, for an awful lot of people. And you're quite right that the inevitable changes in the marketplace in terms of expectations of clients and expectations of wider society have, have changed the pressures on people considerably. So in yeah. terms of that flexibility, do you see a profession that's responding well to that or not? What I can see is some parts of our profession do it really well and others just haven't changed at all. Some of the larger veteran groups really are getting on board with this and the changes coming from the top and filtering down throughout the business. I th also think that it's still quite behind a lot of other industries veterinary with regard to this. However, the current situation is pushing us forward because it has to. So I think over the next few months, well, we already have stopped, we're seeing it already due to the COVID situation we're going to see this change very quickly and we're going to catch up with a lot of other industries. Yeah, so I think if we turn to the, to what we've seen in the last few months and for most of 2020, and if we were to consider some of the impacts of, of a, a global pandemic, I heard the expression the other day that it's the same storm, but it's a different boat. And it does feel that that describes it really well, that um, lots of people are experiencing this in a very different way. 
I wonder what other impacts we might expect to see in the workplace because of the, uh, the global pandemic. Is there anything that you're particularly noticing at the moment? Yeah, so I'm actually recruiting at the moment, which I don't. I'm normally uh, the leader within the office and I coach my staff. So I'm speaking to a lot of candidates at the moment, permanent and locum uh, staff. Now, I'm not sure whether this is a knee-jerk reaction to the situation. What I'm finding is that people's values are changing. In January, one of my most important values was flexibility so that I could spend time at work and with my children. Uh, Now it's about security. So when we're speaking to candidates, especially locums and especially vets, they are now not so much interested in flexibility. They're interested in security. So I think people are asking now, locums are asking for me to find them permanent jobs rather than locum jobs. Now, if that's an idiot reaction, that's not great because we're going to have a load of people going into permanent jobs and then leaving to go back to locum when there's more work there. It's whether it is actually going to stick and people are going to want to locum less. I'm not sure what the answer is to that. What do you think about that? That's a good question. I mean, I go back to a, a, a model that's called the SCARF model that was put forward by a guy called David Rock, which looked at five levers which uh, influenced people, either to move them in a positive direction towards sort of endorphin release and, and being the best they could be, or in a negative direction towards sort of adrenaline fight and flight. Mm-hmm. Those five levers were described as using the, the acronym of SCARF. The, the S stood for status or self-esteem the C for certainty, the A for autonomy, the R for relatedness or working with friends, and and the F for fairness. Mm -hmm. And if we look at what's been happening in the the face of a pandemic, you can see that an awful lot of those levers are being pulled in a negative direction, which is creating, I think, agitation. Um, You know, massive levels of uncertainty in play, a certain degree of not being with all my friends either because I'm working alone or remotely or I've been yeah. furloughed from work. Um, an awful lot might not feel fair in the world. Certainly people aren't feeling in, in control. And uh, particularly perhaps for those that have been furloughed, the sense of status or self-esteem may have uh, taken a real knock. So I think that I don't think we should be at all surprised to find a lot of people quite uncertain and, and and perhaps quite agitated. And I'm interested in what you're saying. I wonder whether values have changed or whether it's just a sort of prioritisation of values. I saw a lovely model the other day which um, went back to Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It pointed out, actually, that uh, Maslow had never actually put those hierarchy into a pyramid. Um, and it talked rather in terms of... Um, talking about self-actualization at the top of the pyramid and the sort of base physiological needs at the bottom of the pyramid. It divided the two things into some some basic needs, uh, like security, as you were saying, Ella, and it put that the hull of the boat. It made that sort of the the hull of the boat. And then some of the higher stuff, you know, the self-actualization, the love and friendship, as the sail of the boat. And it said, you know, we all need a hull. We need security and physiological um, certainty. But really to sail around life's oceans, um, we need a good sail and we need to be able to open that up. And I thought it was a rather lovely model, really, because it does explain actually what you've just said, which is that if you haven't got that security, you can't really 
have a boat to float in. And I do notice that, yes, maybe there has been a little bit of a realisation for those people who have traded on the flexibility of being a locum, appreciating that maybe that hasn't been a a two-way value relationship. And I think permanent work does create a more solid, unwritten social contract between employer and employee. Um, I'm, maybe... not, I'm not sure whether it whether it did. I think now it does. I think before, uh, in, if you go back to this time last year, in, in our experience, there was so much locum work around and very few locums. So it was a pretty secure thing to be in, being a locum. There was always work for you. Yes, was that security of being a locum because, in fact, the sort of the unwritten social contracts had broken down, really, and there was a failure to be retaining uh, good people within practices. That that may well be at the heart of the issue there. So I think there is a place for locuming for both the client and the locum. I do believe, though, that it is good to have permanent staff. And I think to get the right permanent staff and to get them to stay, we've already spoken about it, this unwritten contract needs to be sort of sold as more of a written contract so it's not just something that we sort of bumble along because that's what people want and we kind of find out about it we need to be selling this as what we if we have a job we will offer flexible working we will have three vets doing the work of two full-time vets which means that if you need to take a week off for half term with your children one of the other vets can step in and it they're not locums, they're, they're three people that are working almost full-time. It's just changing slightly how we do things. Mm, yeah, it feels to me that the coronavirus pandemic is shining a certain sort of light of truth on the world, really. I mean, I notice, for example, that it's perhaps shown us quite clearly who really are critical workers, go back to that sort of hierarchy of needs, really. We, we're, we're finding out what we really need, maybe more importantly than what we actually want um so you know we're now as a society defining critical workers as people who stack shelves on supermarket uh, uh, in in supermarkets people who collect our bins for us people who historically we've maybe not been very good at recognizing in society as as being important and critical workers but we're now seeing that with maybe um yeah a greater clarity and i think that in itself is a good thing and maybe also there are some other things that have been shone a light on. I mean, people seem to be enjoying, I've seen market research to say that one of the things that people aren't going to go away from is, is the time they've been spending in nature, taking exercise as well. Yeah. Time with the family as well. Um, and there's been a truth, hasn't there, that actually um, it's been community and the power of community that has provided resilience and robustness to us when a just-in-time economy hasn't uh, hasn't been shown to be very resilient at all to a global pandemic. So that power of community, that power of local connection, I think all of those things help us understand what, what a better and healthier future might look like, definitely. I think in the veterinary field, though, some of the things that you've pointed out there, I think the nature of the career of a vet is that you like the natural world, you you like time with your family. It's a, it's a giving, loving profession, isn't it? And even before the pandemic, a lot of the companies that we're working for were aware of this. And I think um, when we've 
when we've been at conferences and listened to people talking about our industry, everybody's very aware of wellness, um, very aware of time with family. You know, it, 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 it isn't just a new thing. I think that the, the situation has made other industries and other people aware of it because it, it isn't in their nature. But for us, I think as, as vet, in the veterinary industry, it, it's been there all along. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. And I, and I completely agree that there is an opportunity amongst all the sadness of this pandemic, there is an opportunity to use it as a catalyst for some very positive change. Um, I noticed, for example, uh, that um, it was after World War Two that we finally got the start of emancipation for, for women and in, in, mm-hmm. in this country, although it had been something that had been talked about um, and considered in advance of the war. And similarly, uh, again, World War Two led to the creation of the welfare state. Um, so some good things that were, were catalysed by those those catastrophes. It does feel to me that actually maybe an, an awakening to some of the things that are really important in life can be harnessed uh, uh, with a catalyst of this pandemic and and it can lead us to a, a better place. I think, you you know, if I was to summarise, I'd say it feels to me that it will be the adaptable that can survive. And in terms of that employer-employee relationship, it'll be both employers and employees that can adapt and 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 embrace some change that I think will be the ones that come out of this the best, really. Yeah. A lot of the people listening to this will have been at Vet Forum. And one of the conversations we were having last year was about the change within the veterinary market, especially with sort of telemedicine and more technology. Speaking to some of the um, larger veterinary groups, sort of board members, they think that now going back, they're using telemedicine now, obviously, because they have to, but this will stay as part of their businesses moving forward. So we're adapting and we're changing in that way as well. So people will work from home still. People will be able to do all the things, the time with the family, because we are adapting with the, with the new skills. I think they've adapted really quickly as well. When we were talking about it last year at Vet Forum, it was like almost oh, it was a massive effort to move, uh, telemedicine's a good example, move it forward, how are we going to adapt it? But literally, I've just seen it come in within, well, we all have, within months, uh, Three. how many months are we in? Two months in now. Mm. Bang, everybody's using it. Mm. I, would, I would agree. I mean, the, the practices that I work with, we've been talking about telemedicine for at least the last two years, and I would yeah. say perhaps two centimetres of progress was made in that time. Yeah. <laughs> But in the first 10 days of lockdown, um, those practices achieved more than I could uh, expected them to have done in 10 years. Yeah. Um, so, yes, I think it, it goes back to that point. We are actually much more flexible as, as, as human beings than I think we even give ourselves credit for. And we can adapt and we can change. I think it does take a lot of energy, doesn't it? I was talking with... Um, a lady the other day who's a GP who's been consulting in human medicine for 30 plus years and she was remembering how exhausting when she first started consulting the whole thing was and she's saying and now I'm consulting by telemedicine and I'm experiencing those same levels of exhaustion that I did 35 years ago so I think there is you know that recognizing that adapting is uh, is wearing and and I do think there are going to be a lot of people who are 
uh, kind of be quite worn out by having to to deal with um, with the, with so many changes so so quickly. Um, yeah, but I'm very hopeful that we can catalyze and for, to a, to a healthier future. Very helpful. Yeah, I, I think so. Change is exhausting, and change for a lot of people is kind of the most scariest things. And with the COVID situation it's changed but it's also changed because normally when you change a situation at work for example you can tell them the reason you're doing it and you can tell them what you know the results are going to be at the end of it but we're making change for change's sake because we have to but we don't actually know what's going to happen at the end so that's it's um quite draining and mentally it it's very draining when you haven't got the answer the you know the results because you, you don't know what it's going to be so if we were thinking forward to the future and we were thinking both for employers and employees, you know, what, what sort of suggestions might might we give them? Um, what, what ideas might you have, Ella? Um, I, think, I think I've already mentioned it. If we're going to get people into permanent roles, I think we need to look at sort of even job sharing. So people are still getting their hours, but they're doing it in a more flexible way. So rather than having two permanent vets doing full-time hours, just having three that are doing a slightly different and then you're covered. And if you did want to get away from locums, which I hope you don't, <laughs> um, then you could work in that way uh, with that flexibility. I don't think everybody wants to work from home. I think vets and nurses are quite social people. But to have the option with telemedicine, that's great as well. What do you think? What are your ideas? Well, I would go back, I think, to the start of that social contract conversation. I would say perhaps if we bring that to the front of our minds, I notice that creating a great work environment and, you know, whether that's for em employees or employers, it feels as though it could be quite a complicated thing to do, but I don't think it is. I think it's come boils down to a few simple things, really. I mean, basically do unto others as you would, uh, you would be treated yourself, really. Yeah, definitely. So, flexibility, thoughtfulness, reciprocity, sustainability, I think. I do think there's a lot to be said for exploring the differences between generations. I remember seeing a picture some years ago where there's a picture of a, an old person and a picture of a young person, and they were both wearing T-shirts, and the, um, the old person's T-shirt said, uh, talk to young people. They know really loads of interesting things. And uh, the young person was wearing a T-shirt saying, talk to old people too because they know cool stuff as well <laughs> and I thought that was a rather lovely way of connecting generations and perhaps recognizing sort of the unconscious biases that exist I think um, I, I guess my generation could have a tendency of saying well it wasn't like that in our day type thing and younger generations might look at old generations think well, I've got nothing to learn from them really but and but both both would be wrong in that respect so yeah yeah I don't think uh I don't think it would do any harm at all for the generations to talk better to each other. So maybe a good workplace involves some good intergenerational conversations, maybe some good coffee, good cake, <laughs> good fruit, good beer, having a bit of fun. Um, Sounds good. I saw a document uh, the other day which was all about creating a, a good work environment, and it was a very, very long document. It had lots of good things to say, but it, but it was a very long document. And I noticed that there was a word that kept repeating in it. So I actually ran a little sort of word counter on it. And the document had over 280 occasions of the word should, and it only had 20 occasions of the word could. And it got me noticing that actually in terms of creating a great work environment, it's not about should, 
It's about could. Yeah. It's about our choices, both as employers and employees. It's the choices we make um, that can and create a really great work environment. Yeah, I totally agree. Well, I thank you both so much for that discussion. There's plenty in there for our listeners to think about, I think, when it comes to uh, unwritten contracts with employees. And actually, a common trend that I've noticed uh, from doing this podcast for the last few weeks that's super heartening is the extent to which a crisis situation can drive mobilization and progress in people. Um, and that's true you know, across all sectors. So I'm excited to see what the future brings for standard working conditions. Before you go, I'd like to ask you both a couple of quickfire questions uh, that we ask everyone who appears on the show. The first one is, what's the best piece of advice that you've ever received? Ella, maybe we can start with you. So mine is uh, have a goal, have a vision, trust in yourself 100% and you will get it. I will take that advice to heart. (laughs) Andrew? Well, I like that one a lot, Ella, and I hope that mine is complimentary to it because the best advice I've ever had, and it was repeating advice over the years, was get a good night's sleep. (laughs) That's so true. (laughs) And I'm also going to ask for a book recommendation from each of you. Ella, what have you got for me? Okay. Oh, this is so hard. I love books. This is written by a guy who comes and actually speaks to our staff because he's so amazing. I read the book and thought, right, I have to pay for you to come and speak to the staff. It's called The Art of Being Brilliant. And it's a fun little book, but it's so positive. And it's by a guy called Andy Cope. Andy Cope. What was the name? Sorry. The Art of Being Brilliant. The Art of Being Brilliant. Got you. And Andrew, what have you got for me? Well, I'm like Ella, I'm absolutely torn. I think I have to recommend Simon Sinek's The Infinite Game, which I read at the start of this year, and it talks about furloughing. It was a word I had to go and actually look up in the dictionary because it was a time of year I was sort of thinking of unfurling the sales for a new year ahead, and I had to to learn about this word furlough. Little did I realise just how relevant not just that word, but the whole book would be to the whole year. So Simon Sinek's The The Infinite Game is an excellent, excellent read. I'd encourage anyone to to pick that one up. If I was going to be cheeky, uh, Kiana, I'd also slip in a second recommendation because Seneca's letters from a Stoic have been fantastic lockdown reading. Brilliant. I have to agree with uh, the Seneca suggestion. And for a broader introduction to Stoic philosophy, I can recommend A Guide to the Good Life by William B. Irvin. Stoic philosophy is a a passion of mine. And so it's great to see, (laughs) Andrew, that you're sharing Seneca's work. Once again, thank you both so much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you. Real pleasure. Thank you to you both. Thank you for tuning in to Open Room Talks. We hope that you've enjoyed the episode. For inquiries, please feel free to get in touch via email on hello at openroomevents.com. For details on future episodes, please follow us on LinkedIn or visit openroomevents.com. Until next time.